Hey everyone, welcome back to Roehampton Lawcast, episode 13, and today we're back with Maris for another episode. Um, Maris, would you like to introduce yourself again? Hi, uh, everyone. I think I don't need introduction at this point, but um, I'm a, you know, a regular guest at the mm-hmm. podcast. Thank you for having me. But yeah, uh, in case anyone is new and tuning in, my name is Maris Kaiskolako, and um, I am a deputy head of the social sciences department. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about Brexit. Everybody's favourite topic. But actually, I think it almost feels like <laughs> everyone forgot about Brexit because COVID sort of ticked the uh, headlines and now Brexit obviously happened. Um, we officially came out, everything's ended in January. It was like, oh, yeah, we have got that as well. Okay, so we're going to kick off with the withdrawal agreement. Um, that was obviously agreed just before Christmas. There were some lovely pictures of Boris Johnson holding it above his head in some sort of victory that he thinks he's got. Um, but I've read the uh, sort of summary of the withdrawal agreement, and I'm not sure where the positives of us pulling out of Brexit are. Maris, can you give us a bit of an insight there? Well, that depends. Uh, <laughs> what are the positives? I mean, <laughs> depends on what what the what the UK wanted or what the EU wanted. Um, so basically, I I would say that um, what the withdrawal agreement, however, does is that at the moment, uh, even though the transition period ended in um, or, or on the thirty first of December, uh, twenty twenty. I think uh, for the remainder of, uh, or the, for the foreseeable future, we still are in a way transitioning in the UK. Um, so in that sense, I think like as of momentarily, um, maybe in everyday life, not much has changed. And, um, and I think that for an average person, um, indeed, like what is new, uh, because the UK never participated in the Schengen area, so uh, there has never been kind of a free travel between the UK and the rest of the EU member states. So you still had to show your ID when you when you cross the border. And if now, if the borders were open without COVID, uh, mm-hmm. if the borders were open, it would still be the case. So you know you could easily say that okay, so nothing's really changed. And likewise, also whilst we are doing our shopping um, in the grocery store, because that's obviously the only place we can go at the moment. So if you're doing your shopping in the grocery store, um, you notice that the prices are the same, but that's also because at the moment we are still purchasing the products that were transported or imported to UK, whilst we were still part of the single market and therefore they were not subject to custom duties. So in that sense, yes, not much has changed. And the third thing that hasn't perhaps changed as much are the residence rights, which was the the very hot topic during the negotiations. Um, So especially when we we negotiated um, the the withdrawal agreement. So in the trade and cooperation agreement, uh, obviously the hot topic uh, seemed to be the fishing policies. But uh, in the withdrawal agreement, it was the residence rights of the EU citizens in the UK and the UK citizens that were living um, in the EU permanently. So in terms of the residence rights, um, the agreement was that um, those can be retained um, because um, so without any discrimination. Um, And so the people, those EU citizens that had resided in the UK 
before Brexit um, could apply for what is called the settlement status and therefore retain all their uh, benefits in, in that sense under the EU law. And likewise also for these um, UK citizens that had been um, residing then lawfully in, in another member state under the free movement, um, were allowed to stay there. So in that sense, I, I would say yes, not much has changed since uh, 31st or since 1st of January this year. However, um, I would say that um, positives perhaps are, um, <laughs> let, let, let me think <laughs> how to phrase it the best way, is, um, is perhaps the positives are um, maybe the, um, the clearer position. I'm, I'm really happy what was agreed in terms of the Northern Ireland. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very happy that the UK was um, or ended up uh, respecting and uh, withholding the uh, Good Friday Agreement and, um, and therefore did not establish a hard border on the island of Ireland and, uh, and enabled Northern Ireland to stay in the customs union uh, and the single market of the EU. So therefore, I would say that one of the positives is definitely the, the position of the Northern Ireland and all the residents on the island of Ireland. I was going to say, I, I think that Ireland and the island of Ireland and Northern Ireland have been such a prominent topic after Brexit in the news, especially. I think the most, um, the most I've heard after Brexit about what the implications were, were all surrounding Northern Ireland. Um, and so I actually wanted to ask you, the Article 16, that was the phrase that was being thrown around not, I think, two, three weeks ago. Um, what exactly is that? Because I know it's not part of, you know, the Article 16 you would see in the TFEU. It's, it'd be something different. Yeah, so Article 16, that was uh, the hot topic a few weeks ago in the news um, uh, regarding then the, um, the vaccine or the COVID vaccines. Um, so article, that is Article 16 in the Northern Ireland Protocol in the withdrawal agreement. So there is a, spe a special protocol uh, for um, the position that regulates the, or establishes the position of the, of the Northern Ireland. And Article 16 allows the EU or the UK, so the parties to the withdrawal agreement, to unilaterally suspend um, any aspects um, of, uh, of its operations uh, if either side considers that aspect to be causing um, economic, societal or environmental difficulties. Um, so basically to, to say that um, at the moment, uh, so the UK should not use Northern Ireland to as a backdoor to uh, escape uh, any custom duties or tariffs uh, for that they are now subjected to in terms of trading with the EU. So um, what the what the EU of course was concerned about as well and what the UK was concerned about is that the Northern Ireland will then become like one of these um, let's say, um, no, no man's land that, is, uh, that has a, a foot in both boats. So it's partly, it's part of the UK that is no longer um, an EU member state, but at the same time, it retains its position on the single market. Therefore, 
is subject to free trade. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the kind of the concern was that, okay, so that to make sure that either of the parties would start taking advantage of that. Um, and this is what happened. So um, therefore Article 16 was brought in with the intention that should either of the party uh, start taking advantage of, of the situation, um, then the other one could kind of stop their obligations and duties under the withdrawal agreement. So that's what this Article 16 was all about. Now, when we are talking about the, uh, the specific uh, situation in which Article 16 was uh, all of a sudden became very prominent in the news, um, it pertains to the so-called vaccine war. And um, it, is, it is a, was an interesting one, um, obviously, from, uh, from several aspects. So first of all, COVID vaccines, I believe, are the most <laughs> or other the hottest stuff at the moment <laughs> in any market okay so that that's the hot stuff the covid vaccine is everything and and in all fairness our whole global economy depends on the vaccine and it depends on the successful rollout of the vaccines and it depends on the efficacy of these vaccines so they are the um, absolutely most prominent, most important um, goods that are currently in the trade. Now, one of the um, um, manufacturers of that COVID vaccine is AstraZeneca, which is um, actually a global, uh, one of those big pharma companies. Uh, so they are global pharmaceutical company, um, which is, um, is actually a result of a merger of um, Astra and of Zeneca. So one was uh, Swedish and one was the UK-based company. So they merged in the 90s, uh, late 90s. And uh, AstraZeneca was born. And of course, they became one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, therefore. And uh, in cooperation with Oxford University, they uh, produced the uh, COVID vaccine. And um, their main um, production centers are in UK, are in, uh, near, I think, in Cambridge. And um, AstraZeneca, um, therefore, had a, a contract with the EU, as well as with the UK, to produce um, COVID vaccines. And the UK bought certain amount of vaccines, as well as the EU. Now, um, however, because the demand for the COVID vaccine is been, has been so high, and um, so therefore the, the manufacturing process uh, struggles to keep up with the demand. And it's not just a problem for AstraZeneca, it was the same problem for Pfizer, which is another one of the main suppliers, as well as um, Moderna. So it's all basically everyone seems to be struggling. And I, and I think that this uh, production struggle um, but will pertain until we will get more suppliers uh, out in the market. Now, um, so what happened was that um, <laughs> because the demand was so high um, and the manufacturing process could not keep up, um, and also bearing in mind that it's um, the manufacturing process, but also the transport 
um, to other member states has to comply with certain regulations and also certain requirements uh, that derive from the nature of the vaccine, but also have to uh, comply with other um, regulations that are in place. Um, so the, they, they, AstraZeneca basically failed to deliver the amount of vaccines to the EU that they had promised to do. And um, the, the issue became very uh, kind of, um, uh, yeah, let's say um, <laughs> sensitive because in EU, um, the whole vaccine rollout has been centralized. So all the, so the EU buys or purchases all the COVID vaccines for all the member states and distributes them to all the member states. And clearly then, um, having the 27 member states, there was um, quite many vaccine doses that uh, the EU had to deliver and, um, and so forth. And when, the, when AstraZeneca then failed short, um, the EU became um, very suspicious that um, the, these vaccines that were meant to be for the EU were actually delivered to the UK. Um, and they therefore threatened, the European Commission threatened uh, to trigger that Article 16 of the Northern Ireland uh, Protocol because they were suspicious that the Northern Ireland was being used as a backdoor to actually deliver the vaccines that were meant for the EU to the UK. Um, so that was, that was basically why they, they threatened to, to, to do that. Um, if you followed, however, the news, um, you noticed perhaps that um, the position was changed uh, merely a few hours after it was being announced. Mm -hmm. um, and um, <laughs> and yeah. therefore, it was, it was interesting because I remember when the news came out, I was genuinely puzzled because I... Um, the EU really had no legal grounds to invoke that Article 16 because they claimed that the Northern Ireland was used to export vaccines from the EU to the UK. But what puzzles me is that, but the vaccines were in the UK. Right. The problem <laughs> was that they weren't in the EU. So really, if anyone could have triggered Article 16, it should have been the UK. Oh. But uh, so it was, it was the other way around because the vaccines were here. They are produced in the UK. Mm -hmm. So nothing was exported from EU to UK. Yeah. Okay. It's just that they were not exported from UK to EU. That was the problem. Right. And because of and, that. And therefore uh, the EU, you know, um, I think lost their cool uh, for a bit and, uh, and threatened. And, uh, and to me, it was now in a hindsight, I think it was just a bit of a, you know, like flexing of the muscles, let's put it this way. So the EU kind of flexed their muscles and uh, got on their high horse and said like, okay, so here's what we do. We can threaten you with this. So we are gonna trigger article 16. But they of course quickly withdrew that statement. But however, I think it, it was a bit significant um, and it was a bit significant because I think it kind of sent out the signal 
as to how the EU will now um, deal with the UK. So what will be the relationship of the EU and the UK after the Brexit? Yeah, I... it, it to me was, was therefore very baffling that the EU would resort to threats so quickly um, and perhaps was a bit of an attempt to establish themselves in that relationship. Right, yeah, I was actually thinking that it, it, during the whole um, process of the um, what they threatened to trigger, trigger Article 16, and I was thinking that it was just the beginning of a new relationship um, between the UK and the EU, and uh, it almost seems like they've gotten off on the wrong foot, um, you know, so um, I just think this may ad have an adverse effect on the relationship going forward. Amy? I was just going to say, do you think that obviously tensions are heightened with COVID? I think the EU probably think the UK have now got sort of the upper hand, given that we're where um, it's being manufactured. They sort of feel like they're on the back foot here. Do you think that's why the relationship is, is started out in this sort of turbulent manner because of COVID? Or do you think it was always going to happen because um, Britain decided to leave? Um, I think everything is is impacted by COVID, <laughs> and it would be absolutely naive to to pretend that it it isn't. Um, I mean, it's actually I know it isn't the first time we are in a global pandemic, but at the same time, it kind of is, um, and um, and I think everyone seems to be a bit lost, and none of us really knows the best way to react. To the pandemic, um, and and of course, yes, it um, it kind of the t it it definitely intensifies everything, and it complicates also things. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, my speculation is that the the relationship would have been complicated no matter what. Mm. Um, I mean, divorce is never easy. <laughs> and um, and um, you know and there is very rarely such a thing as amicable divorce. So and this is essentially what it what we are dealing with. It's a divorce, um, and it's it is the first time that Article Fifty has been uh, applied, and um, and you know a member state has actually withdrawn from the union. And uh, if you remember, I mean when the whole withdrawal process started, it actually there were a couple of other member states that started also, let's say, contemplating about their relationship with the EU and whether they should also leave. Um, but that kind of subsided. Um, so I think that in that sense, perhaps the wave um, that was being predicted for a while that, you know, the whole, it will now result or lead to the whole EU dismantling um, and um, and you know that the kind of the the the, the era has has ended, uh, but um, but it it didn't. It um, it stayed intact. The union and um, and and this wave kind of did not happen. But I think that the UK, if if we're looking at the vaccine situation, the UK obviously is in a much more advantaged position because it's one of their own manufacturers that is producing the vaccine. It makes it a lot easier and of course also um, cheaper 
for the UK and also um, therefore enables them to roll out the vaccines quicker because they have the supply. They have the adequate supply. So, but at the same time, you also have to bear in mind that the UK is rolling out only the first dose at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, because they have decided to keep um, the, what is it, three months? Yeah, uh, between, yeah, 12 weeks between the two doses. Whereas other EU, uh, or not other, but EU member states are uh, sticking with the three week gap as originally was required. So therefore their rollout into uh, percentage wise or proportion wise of the population is of course lower because of that. But uh, we are yet to evaluate um, which one of the methods is more efficient or more effective. Yeah, it's just different people's um, takes on things, isn't it? It's different governments running their countries in the way yeah. that they think is most efficient. Absolutely. I think that um, the whole pandemic, actually, if anything, it has highlighted um, how independent our countries are. Because if you look at it, um, this is, 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 is the utmost exercise in sovereignty, is, is, the, is the right to decide how you manage this situation. And that's why everyone is doing their own thing. Some countries have opted for very strict restrictions. Long-term restrictions have um, attempted to, uh, so basically the restrictions have not been eased until they have reached zero COVID uh, cases. And um, whereas the others have not really done much of restrictions and have kept um, to, in order to, to save the economy and, um, and have kept it going that, like that. But both, of course, have had their, their, um, their pitfalls. I think that's a really interesting take on it, actually, and, and a way to frame COVID in a slightly more legal manner, perhaps for our listeners to think about that. Um, just moving away from Brexit as a whole, you obviously teach EU law um, at Roehampton. So will, how will the EU law affect Britain post-Brexit? Will it still have any impact? You know, will the course change? Is it, is it all going to have to be rewritten, you know, the books torn up, or is it all sort of the same? Um, <laughs> well, certain books will definitely be torn up, yes. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the subject, okay, so starting from, uh, from, the, from the end, I work my way then backwards. So the module as such, or maybe not the module, but the subject, the EU law as a subject, will remain in the curriculum of, uh, of law degree in the UK, um, mainly because the UK will still participate in certain areas of EU law. Uh, even after Brexit, and um, therefore it will still be important. Um, but also because um, it is still an examinable topic. Uh, so if um, a person wants to qualify as a solicitor or as a barrister as well, um, but so, so more so um, for, the, for the solicitor route, um, EU law is an, is an, is an examinable topic. So therefore, um, it will have to stay in the curriculum. And um, 
but in terms of the substance, uh, I, I'm sure, yes, of course, it will change. It will have to change because the UK's relationship with the EU law will change. Um, uh, at the moment, still, we are, we are doing, and Marine can, can mm. perhaps uh, test to this, is um, we, are, we are still doing a little bit of traditional EU law as well. So this week, we have our fav everyone's favorite topics is direct effect and supremacy of EU law, because they are still here. <laughs> yeah. um, so even with the withdrawal agreement, what the withdrawal agreement has done, it has established retained EU law in the UK. So that is all the EU law that was adopted before the end of the transition period. So basically before the 1st of January, 2021. So all that EU law, that is adopted and applied in the UK before that, that date is still part of the EU, UK law. It still applies and it has direct effect and supremacy over the national law. Now, it continues to be that way until UK replaces these laws with purely domestic regulations which of course the UK, and that is now one of the aspects of the Brexit, I'm not sure if it's a positive one, but when you ask the first question, Amy, it's like, you know, what is, what, what's the positive stuff from the withdrawal agreement? Perhaps this one, I don't know, depends on how you look at it. So it is that ability of the UK uh, to replace these EU laws with the wholly domestic regulations. Um, so, however, Bearing in mind that the UK was a member state nearly 50 years, that retained EU law is quite vast. Mm -hmm. And it takes, I'm gonna be bold here, but I think decades to change it. So therefore, um, it will have to be part of any curriculum in any law degree. Um, and um, so we still have to we still have to study it and we still have to teach it and um, and therefore these general principles will also continue to apply um, and um, and furthermore um, if you look at the trade and cooperation agreement which is then the agreement that so if the withdrawal agreement regulates um, basically um, regulates the UK withdrawal from the EU, but also stipulates the provisions for the transition period and stipulates provisions for EU law application in the UK after Brexit. Then the trade and cooperation agreement is the one that regulates the trade relationship between the UK and EU after Brexit. And, uh, and also establishes then uh, judicial and law enforcement cooperation in criminal matters, as well as UK's participation in EU programs. And under the TCA, so the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, for instance, the UK still continues to be part of the European arrest warrant. So now, if anyone wants to become a criminal law barrister, I'm sorry, but you got to know the European arrest warrant. <laughs> um, or likewise, also to bring another uh, example is, uh, for instance, then, um, if you want to go and work in uh, intellectual property, 
or you want to go and become an in-house solicitor in any of a company that does trade in the EU, then you have to know a the single market rules, so the free movement of goods, services, people, and capital, as well as you have to be um, familiar with competition rules. So in that sense, it's it still will continue to be part. So we can't really turn around and say that now with the 1st of January 2021, we will never have to deal with EU law again. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it's not going to go anywhere. EU law will still be there. It's just its relationship with the UK is the one that changes. Yeah, I, I think that brings us quite nicely onto the next thing, which is... Um one of the last points. Um, do you think then the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, the European Court of Justice, is still, um, they still have some jurisdiction over the UK in terms of EU law? Um, well, I don't think that. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> they still continue. They, they have jurisdiction. Um, so the Court of Justice of European Union um, will still continue their jurisdiction over the UK. And it um, is, again, something that is regulated in the withdrawal agreement. Um, so what this means is that um, in all the disputes, uh, in all the ongoing disputes, obviously, that the UK is party to, and bearing in mind the backlog, um, I would say is approximately a year, if not longer now with COVID, easily mm. two years, so those cases, those pending cases, um, obviously that the Court of Justice's jurisdiction is ongoing and uh, their decisions will be legally binding for the UK courts. Um, furthermore, um, the um, citizens' rights um, that are established in Chapter 2 of the Withdrawal Agreement, so the a Court of Justice of European Union retains the jurisdiction over, uh, on these matters as well as any uh, withdrawal of matters and uh, financial settlements that is also between the EU and UK now that the UK will, uh, has left. So, um, and furthermore, uh, however, this is limited and it's up to uh, four years um, from the end of the transition period. So the cases can be brought to the Court of Justice up until 1st of January 2025. Um, after that, um, it will uh, probably be uh, regulated with domestic um, courts or domestic jurisdiction. Um, however, what the Court of Justice still also retains the jurisdiction in is uh, any infringement cases. So should the UK or the EU uh, breach or infringe uh, the, either the TCA or the withdrawal agreement, um, the, either of the party can bring the other one to the Court of Justice for an infringement procedure. Great. Um, we are running out of time, so I think this is a good place to wrap. I think to take away from this is Brexit is in fact only the start. There is so much more now to come, um, which should be exciting, right, to watch it unfold. I think that uh, it's a very exciting time to become a lawyer. And, uh, and I think that uh, rather than kind of uh, cringe and, and think that, oh my God, why do we have to do this? Um, it's an, actually an opportunity. If you know EU law, 
you will actually set yourself apart from the rest of the newly qualifying uh, law graduates. And to be fair, good knowledge of uh, European Union laws will give you a significant advantage in the employment market. So I think that you know it's it's an opportunity to embrace <laughs> rather than than reject. And um, and yes, it is interesting for me as well now that I have moved on to more to academia to to watch it unfold as you as you put it very well. So if that's not a reason to work really hard in EU law in second year, I don't know what is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> agreed. Okay, uh, thank you, Marius, for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No problem. And we look forward to um, having you guys back on the podcast next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>